This is an ABC podcast. Anger as the big four banks speed up regional branch closures, forcing customers to take their business online and out of town. This is our home. This is our community. Respect what we've done over the 110 years for you as you have done to us. Show some spine, look at the decision and look at the people that you are hurting because we are people, we are not just a number. And tourists come out in droves to witness water cascading down the Dartmouth Dam spillway. Yeah, it's pretty awesome and thunderous. You just like a you know big V8 or a, or a train coming through, going to knock you over. It was, I think, it was pretty good. Uh, better than the Hume Wall too. It's the noise is really impressive, very loud. Yeah, incredible. I'm Sinead Mangan, and this is Australia Wide, coming to you from Wajak Country. The switch to online banking may be a time saver for those who are tech savvy or who live in major cities. But for people in regional areas, the impacts are very different. Hundreds of bank branches are closing in small towns across the country, forcing some residents to drive for hours to do their banking. Many customers are learning of the closures through the media and a federal task force has been called on the banks to do better. Sam McManus reports. 180 kilometres northeast of Perth in the West Australian wheat belt lies the quaint farming town of Wongan Hills. The grain and livestock hub is home to around 1,000 people, a third of whom were born before 1960. Residents here have just discovered Westpac is closing the last bank in town after 110 years in the community, and dozens have gathered for a crisis meeting. Don't come in here and ride rough shot and expect to get away without a ripple because you're going to get some feedback and it's not going to be too pleasant. President of the local Progress Association, Stephen Clark, says profits are being put ahead of people. It's very disrespectful and ill-thought and ill-conceived that they're putting the almighty dollar ahead of the genuine benefits of their, their customers. Locals will now be forced to drive a two-hour round trip to access a bank. Mother and admin worker Shireen Greenwood moved here from South Africa seven years ago chasing the space and freedom of a regional life. She says she may now be forced to move to Perth as more and more local services close down. There might not be a future for my children here and we'd have to look at relocating to the city. Is that what you plan? Do you want to move to Perth? No. 200 kilometres to the southeast, the thriving wheat belt town of Bruce Rock has already had to adjust to being without a bank. A community branch run by locals folded two years ago due to a lack of support and they've been without a major branch for close to a decade. Cafe owner and community bank co-founder Meredith Mackenzie Thornton says business has declined in recent years as locals travel 50 kilometres to Meriden to do their banking. Whenever you have people going out of town for a particular business then the rest of the businesses will suffer because they will spend money over there because it's just convenient. Having nowhere to locally deposit large sums of cash has also created issues. We have a, a considerable safe, uh, both here and, and in our home, So, because we do have to, unfortunately, keep sums of money on, um, on hand because you can't just pop down to the bank and get some. Dozens of towns across the country are facing the same future, with the big four banks speeding up their rate of closure as they increasingly turn online. A federal task force established last year to assess the impacts of closures on regional towns handed down its final report at the end of September. It found the banks should be doing more to communicate with locals after many customers learned their branches' fate through the media. 
National Secretary of the Financial Sector Union Julia Angrisano believes the industry is in crisis and says closures are all part of the plan. Over the last you know, five, five years or so, bank tellers and other bank staff have had targets imposed on actually reducing over-the-counter transactions and increasing the migration to digital or online banking. So essentially, it's been part of their plan. In Wongan Hills, Stephen Clark has a message for Westpac executives. This is our home. This is our community. Respect what we've done over the 110 years for you as you have done to us. Show some spine, look at the decision and look at the people that you are hurting because we are people, we are not just a number. Sam McManus reporting there from Northern in Western Australia. You're listening to Australia Wide. On ABC Radio. And you're with me, Sinead Mangan. For decades, the survivors of child sexual abuse in Ballarat's diocese were silent or silenced. When revelations of clerical abuse started coming to light in 2010, a group of Catholic parishioners, the mothers of survivors in the Victorian town, decided to speak up on their behalf through the art of quilting. The women embroidered symbols and messages of hope, creating a compelling and tangible piece of art to display the gruesome truth of institutional clergy abuse. Now the story of the blanket has been told through the Quilt of Hope book, sharing the lived experience of parishioners, mothers and truth seekers. Our reporter in Ballarat, Laura Myers, with this story. On display in Canberra's Museum of Australian Democracy is a powerful piece of art. The quilt itself is a, is a beautiful memorial piece that will last forever. The Quilt of Hope, as the piece is best known, is a blanket made of 80 hand and machine stitched panels embroidered with messages and symbols of hope. It's a compelling and tangible piece of art to display stories of institutional clergy abuse and each square is dedicated to honouring abuse survivors. It's the product of countless work by dozens, including Adrienne Maloney's mum, Carmel. My mum says to me, she says, I read this and I think, I don't even know how we did this. And they just rolled with it. They didn't think it was anything huge while they were doing it. But... It really is quite huge what they did. The quilt was created by more than 80 Catholic parishioners in Ballarat, the mothers of survivors of clergy abuse. Now, Adrienne Maloney has collated the stories of those loved ones in a book. It's a companion to the quilt and a vital step to raise up the voices of families and survivors. It's an incredible experience for the ones that we've been able to include um, because their voices haven't been heard. And the people that feature in our book are parishioners, namely my mum, but a few others. They're mothers that that haven't necessarily had their voice set out or been able to tell their story. You know, this is something, an issue that impacts them on their everyday lives. It's not something that happened in the past like some people like to think. It impacts them every day. Anne Ryan was a Catholic school teacher in the southwest Victorian town of Maudlake from the 1970s to the 1990s. Ms Ryan taught at St Coleman's School when convicted pedophile Gerald Ridsdale was parish priest. Some community members turned against those who were actually trying to get some sort of outcome or raise their voice. There was no collective outrage. Everyone, anyone that did take action was sort of doing it 
subversively and, you know, quietly. She made a powerful submission to the Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sex Abuse in 2015 and has worked tirelessly over the decades to be a champion for survivors of clergy abuse. That hard work and her story has been immortalised in the Quilt of Hope book. I'm actually quite overwhelmed. I just hope, you know, I hope it has a fairly, gets a fairly wide readership and that more and more people actually stop and ask themselves, ask questions of themselves and ask questions about what they really believe. This November marks a decade since former Prime Minister Julia Gillard announced she would recommend a royal commission into child abuse to the Governor-General. Paul Tatchell experienced institutional abuse in the 1970s in Ballarat. Mr Tatchell says he does not identify with the term survivor or indeed victim and the abuse does not define him. He says having a community of people come together to create the Quilt of Hope book and to be there to support one another throughout the years is crucial. It was one of the most emotional events I've ever spoken at where I when I looked across the, the audience and, and the, the people that were there on the surface there was a, a high degree of sadness there was also a, an enormous degree of hope 10 years ago there was no hope just sort of was a disaster that we could never recover from but these people who were deeply affected um, had had a view that well there is hope and and, and this little book people have, have used their, everything they felt within them to write within that book. The blurb of the Quilt of Hope book reads this is an inspirational story of people who chose to stand up in the face of evil and work together to challenge the collective silence of the Catholic Church and wider Catholic community. That story from Laura Myers in Ballarat and if you are in an abusive situation or know someone who is you can call 1-800-RESPECT. That's 1-800-737-732. And if it's an emergency, you can call triple zero. ABC Australia Wide. Country people can't be discriminated against. Not in Tumut. They were homesick, you know, poor little lumps. A flood is a flood and a fire is a fire and a drought is a drought. You're listening to ABC Australia Wide on ABC Radio. It's been 26 years since water from the Dartmouth Dam in northeast Victoria has cascaded down its spillway, holding 4 million megalitres of water. And to give you perspective, that's eight Sydney harbours worth. The Dartmouth Dam staircase spillway has brought thousands of visitors to the area. It's a cascade of awe and wonder. But as the dam spills for the fifth time since it was constructed in the 70s, it brings trepidation for those downstream. Annie Brown has this story. It's been 26 years since anyone heard the roar of water cascading down the Dartmouth Dam spillway. It's like this huge waterfall, like Niagara Falls. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty awesome and thunderous. You just like a you know a big V8 or a, or a train coming through going to knock you over. It was I think it was pretty good. Uh, better than the Hume Wall too. It's the noise is really impressive, very loud. Yeah, incredible. Dartmouth has a population of just over 100, and the influx of tourists has the town buzzing. The pub is booked out every weekend, cranking out hundreds of meals. And the local CFA, Progress Association and Fishing Club have set up a fundraiser at the fire station. John Scales has lived in Dartmouth all his life. This is the fifth time the dam has spilled since it was built 44 years ago. It is a rarity, believe me. It's a fairly quiet little little place most of the time, but it's certainly come to life over the last few days. It's spilled four times before officially. Um, it's probably spilled five or six, you know, just really small filled spills. But um, the last one in uh, 1996, 
was almost 20,000 megalitres and uh, that was just an incredible spill that reached every extremity of the spillway and banged and crashed its way down into the Middle River and was just a sight to behold. Are you expecting a similar thing to happen this year? <laughs> well, I hope it doesn't get to that stage this year because there'll be some very worried farmers further downstream if it ever got to that stage and it would have to be a unique event, a rainfall event for it to, uh, to reach any proportions like that. Although it's been good for the town's economy, the spill comes with flow-on effects. Peter Lipcombs has been the weirkeeper for 45 years. He knows the dam inside and out. For him, the spill is not necessarily good news. That's a pain in the ass. Can you explain why? <laughs> Operationally. Well, it's just, uh, it's, it's just we're going to be concentrating on... Um, we just began to concentrating on uh, operations. Uh, we've got plenty of other things we should be doing. Uh, and when it does go over, it's uncontrolled. Uh, there will be effects all the way downstream, uh, affected all the way into Hume. The downstream landholders will be affected. Uh, restricted generation capacity of AGL. Uh, there'll be uh, extra maintenance after the event on the spillway. So it's not, not an ideal position to be in. The one positive, I suppose, is that the, um, the next drought that we can have, we can't have had any more water to start with. In the, you know, in the future, but uh, when you think of it, this storage is the storage of last resort, and we are here for drought. The dam's most significant spill was in 1996. At its peak, 20,000 megalitres per day was going over the spillway. That was um, unfortunately impressive, because there was a lot of water going over the top. It caused a lot of damage downstream, down into the, the, the farmers' lands. It's taken their capacity to graze cattle. It affected their grass growth. There's an enormous amount of money spent on the spillway refurbishment. Yeah, but if you, from a visual aspect, it was uh, impressive. Cameron Patton is a dairy farmer in the Middle Valley whose land flooded in 1996. So I think we were 96% inundated on the floodplain. Yeah, we had country locked up to, uh, have, you know, to conserve fodder. We went ahead and cut it and then uh, it was wasted. It, it was just full of silt. Our cattle wouldn't eat it. Had to get more rain then to clean the grass, which was an irony. Right now, only 5,000 megalitres of water is going over the spillway per day. However, farmers are already bracing for flooding. Yeah, we immediately lose acres of country. Yeah, it's just disappointing. Or, uh, yeah, in a year when the cows are performing the best they've ever done and the price is comfortable. You're looking down the barrel of losing 250 acres of pasture probably and uh, but to have to buy, buy fodder to just to function. Now the dam is spilling, Peter advises that there's no rush to get to Dartmouth. I anticipate it will, water will be going over for an extended period just due to the uh, bomb outlook and the best outlooks they've got are indicating that we're about 80% chance that we'll be getting above average rain from now right through to December, unfortunately. If you're driving up here, uh, beware of the, uh, our furry animals. There's plenty of them. Go slow. Peter Lipkins, and he is the Dartmouth Dam Weirkeeper. And he was speaking there to our reporter, Annie Brown. And you can actually see the dam spilling on abc.net.au slash rural and, and get that feel for the sound because it's quite something.
The Koori Knockout Rugby League competition is the largest gathering of First Nations people in the country. After a two-year COVID-19 hiatus, it's back this year in Ewan country on the south coast of New South Wales. Jessica Clifford has this report from NARA. There's nothing like a game of rugby league to bring people of all ages from all over the country together. 40,000 First Nations people from all corners of Australia watching rugby, catching up with their mobs and trying to prove their home team is the best Aboriginal rugby league team in the country. Pathways manager for the NRL, Dean Witters, says the Koori knockout is a modern-day corroboree. It's like a modern-day corroboree. It's a, it's a real celebration for Indigenous people who get together, we catch up, um, uh, obviously sharing the passion we have for rugby league and get that opportunity to represent our communities and families and catch up with people you haven't seen for a long time. So it's always a real positive event and brings the best out in our people. This year's the 50th anniversary event, which was supposed to be held two years ago. So it's not surprising, it's something everyone's been looking forward to. And for the junior players who are playing in their first knockout, it hasn't disappointed. Everyone's here to have fun. Everyone's here to play footy. Everyone's having a good time. Good atmosphere. Yeah, it's pretty pretty good, eh? I feel great. Like, it feels like good to be with the girls and that. Yeah. Nah, it's deadly. Like, seeing all the mob and that. Yeah. Seeing some of the brother boys, just the girls. All my cousins I haven't seen in ages. Yeah, all the mob. Yeah, just see everyone. I'm feeling pretty pumped up for next year so I can start training again. Of course, it's not just a youth tournament. It's a tournament with players of all ages and abilities. Players like Latrell Mitchell, Josh Adokar and Cody Walker are all playing for their local sides. Cronulla halfback Braden Trindle was among the star-studded lineup. Yeah, the boys uh, got together earlier this year and finally put a side in, like a competitive side. I've always wanted to come back and play for my, my mum and pop's family, so um, yeah, it's good to be back with a few of my cousins in there and yeah, heaps of other relatives actually. There's more than 4,000 players all up, making it one of the largest rugby league events in the world. It also attracts around 40,000 spectators. Up at the Elders' Tent, there's a lot of catching up and cheering to do. I've seen relatives I haven't seen for years. (laughs) So, you know, I've caught up with a lot of people from Armadale and, yeah, it's been really good. And the footy's been great, great. Yeah. yeah, I mean, uh, your team's just had a win, so... Yeah, that's... yeah. well, get, well, get, win the final, yeah. final. <laughs> when we said, they said it was coming to now, I said, ooh. Yeah, it was really great, you know, and it brings things into our community, like, for the, uh, with, you know, with um, everything that's going on and bringing it up. Well, money, really, in the community, because a lot of crazy. Yeah. <laughs> and it's good to see it. It's fun. Yeah, and it's fun to come and see. I love it. It's all a bit of fun, but the players take the game seriously because there's a lot at stake. There's glory, of course, but also the right to host the next Koori knockout on their home country. In 2019, the South Coast Black Cockatoos, a team from the New South Wales South Coast, won their first ever tournament, which is why everyone's gathered here. It hasn't been easy, though, with torrential rain in the lead-up to the event and on the opening couple of days. Plus, managing logistics and security. But organiser Rondell Lloyd Bolt says the positives far outweigh any challenges. It's deadly to get together, especially after COVID and everything that's happened. Um, and it's even awesome for us just to be the host. It's it's amazing. Like, it, yeah, it's so deadly to bring everyone down here. 
And from here, it will be Newcastle who takes the reins after they outplayed Walgett with a final score of 22-16. to 16. They won it back in 2016, but this year Walgett was tipped to win, with rumours accommodation in Dubbo was already starting to fill up before the grand final was even played. Newcastle All Black Adrian Davis, player of the tournament, sums it up. I live by the motto, when the tough gets tough, it get tougher. So, you know, we just live by that, mate. You know, and it just goes to show, you know, everyone just puts in, we just bleed for one another. We've got heart. Great event. Jessica Clifford reporting there from Nara. And finally, we're going to head to Queensland where Gatton local Peter O'Brien has stumbled upon an obscure opening in the pet industry, breeding shrimp. These little critters are usually served with a side of avocado, but now for a premium price, you can buy them as a pet. The tiny shrimp of rare colours can fetch a lot of money for each one. And as Belinda Sanders found out, they don't like to live alone. Move over, cute puppies. There's a new pet moving in on the lucrative companion market and it's also attracting big dollars from keen owners. Aquarium freshwater dwarf shrimp are one of the recent micro-pets introduced to aquarium communities across the world. At a tiny two centimetres in length when fully grown, the colourful critters are in big demand. Well, the big thing about shrimp is that the variety of colours, as you've already seen, is just mind-blowing. And also you can modify that colour through selective breeding. They're a very malleable aquatic species. They're not like goldfish where every fish you buy is going to be gold. like that. You, you might start with one with a lot of black on it and then breed it back to have a bit more white or a bit more blue and things like that. So they're a very popular sort of designer animal. For Gatton-based breeder Peter O'Brien, it was a search for the next big thing that led him to a YouTube video and then the resolve to give dwarf shrimp breeding a go. Well, I was watching YouTube like everyone does, just <laughs> random YouTube, and I saw some nice shrimp on there, and I, I you know, so I bought some. I then put them on in, on Facebook, and then all of a sudden I got this, you know, avalanche of people wanting to buy them. I thought, ding, you know what they say about a thousand crazy ideas, <laughs> and just one is a good one. So I, I decided to start breeding them, and uh, I cannot keep up with the demand. I cannot keep up with the demand. I, I um, breed them as fast as I can, but they go just as fast as I can breed them. It's not just their colours that are attracting the attention of aquarium enthusiasts. With Mr O'Brien comparing the colony building creatures to an underwater ant farm. They're also very peaceful and sort of like industrious. They fight a little bit, they play a little bit, and they're just very, very interesting little animals. The prices are eye-watering at the moment, with bids from overseas easily surpassing $500 each, depending on the vibrant colours. Overseas, it's it's huge in Germany and Asia and uh, America and things like that. Australia is really sort of the... um, a bit behind the rest of the world. They actually have shrimp auctions where they auction shrimp and you all bid on them online. Some of the prices can just be mind-boggling. It's a very, very strange (laughs) pet industry, let me tell you. In Melbourne, avid fan Tony Alvivi-Zopoulos is also busy building his shrimp colony. His impressive home setup now includes 13 tanks with more than 1,000 pet shrimp. 
Compared to the overseas market where dwarf shrimp have been bred for decades, Mr Alvivi Zopoulos says the hobby is still in its infancy here in Australia. Definitely a growing hobby in Australia. We're not as advanced as Europe, Asia Pacific or America, but we're definitely growing very fast and we definitely have Facebook pages in Australia, just like other hobbies, where you share your ideas, share your experiences. Even though the pet shrimp can't fetch a ball or curl up on your lap, breeders are cashing in on their low maintenance and distant glow. The market for the small number of Australian breeders is mostly overseas, with Asia home to the most passionate pet shrimp owners and cashed-up customers. But unlike dogs and cats, the advice is don't get too attached from Mr Alvivi Zopoulos. Their lifespan's only two years maximum, um, from baby to full adult where they'll pass away. So you try not to say, that's my favourite, because you know that anywhere between one year to two years, they might pass away. So you try to, a rule of thumb is, don't get too attached to, to a particular shrimp. Just get attached to a colony and enjoy the colony as such. There you go. Enjoy the colony of prawns rather than the individual prawn itself. That's Australia-wide for this Tuesday. I'm Sinead Mangan. I hope you have a lovely evening. Cheerio. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.